0: Hello, and welcome to the 14th episode of the BLS Report. The BLS Report is produced by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia to honour our friend and mentor, the late Bob Baxt. Bob was instrumental in establishing and developing the Business Law Section. I am Professor Pamela Hanrahan from the UNSW Business School. I'm Deputy Chair of the Executive of the Business Law Section and a consultant at Johnson Winter Slattery. I'm joined by my regular co-host and fellow member of the BLS Executive and the firm, John Keeves. Hello, John.
1: Great to be here.
0: All right. We're very excited. We have a very special guest for our podcast today, uh, and that is Professor Elise Bant, F-A-A-L, from the University of Western Australia. So Elise is Professor of Private Law and Commercial Regulation at UWA. She's a Professorial Fellow at the University of Melbourne and a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Law. Her main areas of teaching and research interest lie in the fields of unjust enrichment and restitution, contract, commercial and consumer law, civil remedies, property, equity and trusts. She's a general editor of the Journal of Equity and was appointed by the Australian Research Council as a future fellow um, to examine corporate liability for serious civil misconduct, including fraud and predatory trading practices. And it's that ARC research project that we're going to discuss with Elise today. Hello, Elise, and welcome.
2: Hello, Pamela.
0: Hello, John. Thanks so much for joining us. I have had the honour of being involved in this project, so I know how significant it is, and I'm, I know that the members of the BLS will be really interested to hear about it, so thank you. Could you begin by just explaining to us why you became interested in this research and what the sort of timing and, and I guess, intellectual inspiration
2: was for the project? Thanks Pamela. The project was really born from watching the Royal Commission into the Financial Services Misconduct the Banking Royal Commission and seeing the and hearing the testimony of witnesses over many months. Many of whom were CEOs and directors and really the industry leaders of banks and other large financial service providers and a lot of this testimony was remarkable because it uh, related to their complete ignorance of extended misconduct that had been occurring on their watch. So, for example, one of the most to- notorious examples was the long-standing practice of taking fees for no service. In some cases, banks were taking fees in relation to life insurance premiums for people who had died so it was they were charging deceased persons fees for life insurance and the reason why this was incredible was not even just that it had been happening for so long but that it was apparently so acceptable for the various CEOs to say that they were oblivious completely ignorant of this misconduct and the way they had of characterising this misconduct as involving mistakes or administrative errors. Now the reason why they did this was because it matters as a matter of corporate responsibility and liability under our law whether conduct occurs by mistake, accidentally, or whether it's deliberate, knowing, predatory, dishonest. All of these sort of characterizations matter and in all of those cases what matters is the corporate state of mind with which the corporation engaged in the misconduct. And what these CEOs were doing were saying, well, we didn't know and so therefore the corporation, the bank or the, you know, insurance company or whoever it was, the financial service provider didn't know. So their ignorance had the effect of whitewashing the corporate conscience and that seemed just so unacceptable to me on a whole range of different levels and so I decided to start investigating why it was that it was possible for this kind of very evasive narrative of denial to take place um, so uh, frequently and so effectively. Thank you. And so that led to,
0: I guess, a part of the project, what which resulted in a book that's just been published by Bloomsbury called The Culpable Corporate Mind, which is a terrific title, by the way. So. I'm going to ask you in a minute why culpability should matter in the regulation of corporate as distinct from individual behaviour, but can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by the culpable corporate mind and why it's important in terms of regulation and penalties
2: for corporate misconduct? Yes, it's a really good question. Um, Corporations are considered to be persons in the eyes of the law, but of course they're not natural persons like you or me um they're artificial persons given the capacities of natural persons to do a whole bunch of stuff and actually they're kind of supernatural in their, in many respects for example they don't die they don't have to sleep they can sort of split themselves up into different parts for tax minimization purposes you know they can operate simultaneously across the globe so they have all sorts of advantages that uh, natural persons don't have but But what they don't have is they don't have a natural mind, and this matters because in the law, as I mentioned before, you know how a a, 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 an action or some conduct was engaged in, whether it was done knowingly or by mistake, uh, deliberately, uh, with knowledge of consequence, with the intention of producing a certain harm, that matters for the law's purposes, and it matters in a range of different ways. So, for example. It might matter because there might be a prohibition on dishonest conduct, for example, and that's the case in our law. We have various prohibitions on dishonest conduct that apply to natural persons like you and me but also to corporations. Um, How you work out what a corporate mindset is no easy task Um, and that's been a real challenge for the law. But in some cases, the law has tried to deal with this by just, you know, introducing forms of responsibility or liability which look strict in nature, where you don't actually have to prove that the particular conduct was engaged in on purpose. So, for example, a prime example is our prohibition on misleading conduct in trade or commerce. You can contravene that prohibition by mistake or actually reasonably (laughs) believing yourself to be saying the truth. It doesn't matter. The fact that you've engaged in misleading conduct contravenes the prohibition. But even there, even with those strict liability prohibitions, which look like they dodge the problem, minds matter for the purposes of penalty. So, for example, if a corporation engages in misleading conduct, it matters when it comes to the question of what kind of civil pecuniary penalty they might pay, a kind of fine whether they engaged in the conduct on purpose or mistakenly and and so on. And it will also matter for things like whether, you know, the um, ASIC or the ACCC, one of our regulators, will even take them to court in the first place. They might decide if they come to a view that this was mistaken conduct that they'll deal with it administratively or through some sort of agreed settlement. By contrast, if the conduct smacks of deliberate or dishonest conduct then they're much more likely to pursue it through the courts so minds matter and it's been a real conundrum for the law how to identify how this artificial person the corporation can be understood sensibly to think and to have purposes and intentions and so on and and to date the law's answers to that question haven't really been very satisfactory. Yes, so most of us
0: probably started at law school with the notion of directing mind and will and the sort of Tesco supermarkets model and then moving through to a meridian type approach and then various attempts to work out what it is that the corporation, as distinct from its officers or, you know, the people through whom it works, um, how the corporation's state of mind is to be determined and that's really what you're interested in.
2: Yes, and and what I've been trying to do is I've, I've been trying to find another way of identifying in a theoretically rigorous but also practically workable way how we can get away from what I call the where's Wally approach. The where's Wally approach looks for the relevant uh, human on which we can hang the corporate conscience. So, you know, it might be a, a director or a CEO or, you know, under some statutory uh developments. It might be some employee or agent who's engaged in the relevant harmful conduct, for example. Um, but in all of those cases, you've got to find a human. It's the where's Wally problem. And in modern corporations, often conduct is shared between groups. It might be carried out through automated systems. Um, knowledge in the intention is fractured across the, the corporate hierarchy in different ways. So it seemed clear that if we're, you know, hinging corporate responsibility on finding a, a responsible human, we're we're doomed to disappointment. And so instead, I turned to ideas of and theories of organisational responsibility, thinking about organisations uh, in an holistic way. So thinking about them as having organisational responsibility, blameworthiness as a group, and tried to think about you know what kinds of insights were available from that sort of sphere, and in Australia we have a very vibrant conception, which is quite useful here. This idea of corporate culture, which was introduced into our Commonwealth Criminal Code, um, which which comes close to to where I've ended up being, and it it was pointing to practices and policies of corporations. Um, being important in encouraging or persuading or inducing misconduct. And what my theory has done is picked that up, that idea of, you know, a, a sort of a systemic mindset on the part of corporations that might manifest through its policies and practices and actually work that into, a, you know, actually a sort of a, a, a theory that can be used to prove and identify really discrete mental ideas like knowledge like intention specific and general intention like mistake you know so 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 that's the work that i've done and it's a model called systems intentionality Thank you. I love that image of where's Wally.
0: I think that's a really good way for people to understand it, that, that the traditional models of attribution of fault in corporations have tended to look for a state of mind in a person rather than in an ex, a cultural expression or a cultural artefact of the corporation as, a, as an institutional form.
1: I'm just reminded um, of a statement by an ancient Lord Chancellor uh, which is often misquoted in the following way did you ever expect a corporation to have a conscience when it has no soul to be damned and no body to be kicked? And it just seems to me that, um, if, if I may, I, I, think, I think it's an absolutely fantastic um, uh, thing that we're, we're talking about. It it's just seems that we've got legal doctrines that were developed in ancient times for individuals when uh, corporations were very rare, except in some you know, limited circumstances. And were adapted by analogy to companies but very roughly and the the attribution rule seemed to me to be to be to be very um not not very fit for purpose and it seems perfectly logical to come up with a a kind of a a a different rule for corporations which has regard to the fact that um uh, as to say there is no body to be kicked or what have you and it just seems to me um, we're, we're really talking here i think if i've got this right about a theory of mind a theory of corporate mind, and when I when I think about uh, the the sort of the human the, the human theory of mind, we, we we judge people by what they do and what they say, not necessarily what what is in fact in the in, in, in inside their minds. So is this is this that is this just simply making a judgment about the what what's in the corporate mind by what the corporation does.
2: Yeah, it, it's, it's very, very close to that, uh, John. It's, it's, I can give you a very simple example, which will probably reinforce your intuition. So when I mean to make a cake, which is frankly a very rare um, occurrence because I'm not into baking and I'm, I prefer savoury to sweet, but if I mean to make a cake um, and I deploy a recipe to do so what I'm doing is I'm adopting and deploying an external decision support that is a system that helps me decide how much flour to put in the eggs and you know the temperature to put the oven on and so on and so forth this external decision support is the recipe and it helps guide my decision making to enable me to achieve my purpose which is to make a cake to engage in the conduct of baking in order to make a cake now that Recipe is a system of conduct, and I deploy it to enable me to achieve my ends. Now, because I'm human, I have a natural mind, and so I could actually work off my intuition or my memories from my natural experience to muck my way through and hope that I would achieve a cake (laughs) at the end of it. But of course, corporations don't have natural minds, and so the only way they can achieve their corporate purposes is through deploying systems of conduct. And that's the critical insight. Systems of conduct are purposive, coordinated plans of procedure or strategies that are uh, engaged by corporations to achieve corporate purposes. Now, some systems of conduct are are sort of default decision-making systems like boards of directors. And in fact, you know, uh, shareholders in general meeting and, and things like that. You know, without them, The corporation is just a passive shell, it's a zombie. So it needs to have the default core decision-making structures in place, the systems of conduct, to enable it to engage purposefully and purposefully with the world. So so you have those default systems, but of course a corporation just can't simply act through its board of directors and never get anything done unless it's a very small hierarchical corporation a mum and dad corporation for example might work perfectly well in that way but for larger corporations they have to have you know uh, more granular everyday systems of conduct and when you look at those systems of conduct they absolutely shout objectively speaking the corporate purpose um, intention its beliefs its its values its its state of mind so I'll I'll give you a, a, a simple example so remember, I was talking about the, the fees for no services case previously. Well, a lot of these um, fees were deducted through automated fee deduction um, systems that were deducting fees from a client's account. Now, you don't need to know much at all about the circumstance of the corporation to understand a few key things that tell you a lot about the corporate mental state. So firstly, we know that these are fees that are being deducted for life insurance. Secondly, they're being deducted from humans because they're the ones that are having life insurance. And thirdly, that humans have a nasty tendency to die. That's why they're getting Life insurance now doesn't take much to know in those circumstances if you are the corporation that's deploying this system of conduct that inevitably at some point circumstances will change that will result in you having to have some sort of um, re-justification for or, or some sort of remedial action in relation to the taking of fees. Something will occur, person will die or they'll change, you know, address or something will happen and you'll have to have some sort of a remediation system in there now if the corporation puts in place an automated system like that and chooses not to have any remedial mechanism that tells you that the corporate choice is to keep taking until forced to stop through some sort of external and um you know uh, frankly, poorly designed or undesigned mode. So so in the fees for no services cases, the corporations were all saying through their, through, through their CEOs, um, oh, you know, this was mistaken conduct, you know, it was all just an administrative error, we didn't mean to do it. But through a systemic approach, we can say, well, this system was working perfectly well as designed. And what it shows is a frank disregard for the inevitability that these automated takings would degenerate into unlawful automated takings. Now that's not just carelessness, that smacks more of recklessness and one might say that in the case when you're dealing with uh, very expert financial service providers as these were, that it smacks of dishonest conduct. If we transferred this to a a a natural person context we'd be hard put to see why it is that we wouldn't call it dishonest so why to not in the corporate context so so that that's the kind of change that systems intentionality seeks to provide through this very simple sort of analysis
1: and and that um that analogy with recklessness and indeed you know that the sometimes fine dividing line between flavours of negligence and recklessness, that, that does kind of resonate to me because if um, if you have an organisation that sort of fails to look, it, it uh, certainly calls to my mind, you know, notions of willful blindness and therefore constructive knowledge and, you know, what that, that you should perhaps be deemed to, to know things that you, you know, you should have known if you'd, you'd taken the care to look. Um, but um, can, can I just ask a, a slightly different question um, uh, in your, uh, you've got a published journal article that I, that I read, and you refer in that to um, uh, actually one of my one of my lecturers a long time ago, uh, Brent Fissey, and the idea that if there's repeated conduct, that that is it, it implies culpability. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
2: Yeah, so Brent Fissey was one of the contributors to the culpable corporate mind, actually, and he has. Um, really done some of the most profound and powerful work uh, in this sphere over some three or more decades. Uh, one of his key ideas was the concept of reactive corporate fault. And this was the idea that you can come to understand what corporations intend to do, in part through how they re- respond, how they react to causing harm. <laughs> so, so um, you know, when, and, and this, of course, is highly intuitive, that if you have a corporation, for example, that's deployed some system of conduct or is engaging in some harmful practice, how it responds to that conduct is a real insight into uh, you its know, state of mind. Um, for example, if in the fees for no services cases uh, when the first bereaved uh, family members rang up and said, just a sec, we seem to you know, be seeing um, uh, fees going out of you know, my husband or my father or my son's accounts even though they are now deceased and we've told you that, we've notified the, the bank what's going on and there was an immediate, oh gosh, We need to have another look at our automated fee deduction system and put in place appropriate measures. That would speak of a prudent corporate mindset. Um, You know, it would speak of true error. It would suggest that the initial takings were unintended. Um, It would suggest that something's gone wrong with the system, that the system wasn't implemented as designed. You know, it would suggest a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, But when you just Keep going, (laughs) as occurred. Um, You know, keep going for another three or four years, um, amassing profits while so so so-called investigating the problem. the The reinforcing suggestion is that this conduct was uh, knowing and intended all along. So, so um, Brent Fissi's work is very important to mine. I I suppose where I I differ is that um, I'm I'm interested in how systems are deployed both proactively and reactively so I think that when you deploy a system you say something very um, very powerful and explicit about the choices that you make and the values you have as a corporation in the sort of um, system design you know um, and and, you know I talk about automated systems a bit but it can be that you know any system so for example, in the university sector, it's often really, really, really difficult to get reimbursement for expenses, um, you know, that you've incurred during the course of your uh, research uh, activities. Now, you know, you could think that that's just accident, but but part of me thinks when you, when you look at the nature of the hurdles in place, um, there's a clear um, disincentive to actually reclaiming that expenditure. Um, so so what, what it does is it sort of says, well, listen, you know, the values of the um, organisation um, and, uh, you know, its, its preferences, what it places value on, those sorts of things are often pretty explicit on the face of the um, system design and that can apply in all sorts of different contexts, whether it's around, with occupational health and safety or it's around you know financial systems or it's around other kinds of you know um, systems of conduct and practices uh, though the nature of those uh, sort of what they call choice architecture is really significant for revealing uh, corporate knowledge and intention.
1: It seems to me that when we're talking about automated processes we're, we're... Either on the cusp or on the on the downward slope of a slippery slide of seeing many many things be automated. Now, as I said to Pamela the other day, I was I dropped my car off to get some work done on it, so I had to get a a ride, a ride sharing service thing, and the guy picked me up and he drove around the block, and I said, "Why did you do that? You just drove around the block." He said, "Oh, the, the the app told me to," and so it, it was completely. Like it was a bit like in Little Britain where a computer says, no, it's just like, well, it's just like you know, the, the the system has just kind of told me to do something and so that's okay.
2: We'd be wrong to think that this is just something that's limited to, you know, automation and AI. Of course, when you have standard operating procedures in place and they really are embedded, um, you, you have standard operating procedures precisely in order to remove individual discretion and judgment from... Um, the natural employees who are part of that system. So you, you're trying to effectively pre-program their choices in advance, um, usually in the name of, you know, profitability, but it could be in the name of safety or there some, might be some other purpose of that particular standard operating procedure. So so all automation does is make those choices uh, much more determinate so that there's no, you know, little chance of, um you know, employee uh, or other error, um, you know, the the system just rolls out as designed. But the flip side of that is the system rolls out as designed and it rolls out with the choices implicit in it around things like default settings, you know, do you harvest information automatically or do you ask the consumer whether they would like to have their information harvested or would prefer to be private? So these sorts of default settings are uh, uh, you know beautifully explicit in automated systems and but same thing happens with standard operating procedures and so on. When it comes to machine learning and all of that sort of stuff, yes, it's more complex again but but part of the trick there is to remember that a decision to deploy a um an uncontrolled machine learning system is also exactly that a decision. To deploy an uncontrolled machine learning system with whatever um, guides it has you know whether it's you know if it's just being guided to maximise profit that's a decision and it's not a very ethical one if you're you know deploying a machine learning system that could cause harms.
1: Is this any difference in principle to, uh, to who's responsible for an autonomous vehicle?
2: No, it's exactly the same question. So so, so all of systems intentionality applies to all these different contexts in which you see firms trying to, frankly, delegate responsibility to the robot. You know, it's the robot's fault. You know, it was the car or it was the, you know, person sitting in the autonomous vehicle or, the, you know, there's this kind of this deferral of responsibility But we have to remember that these systems of conduct are the corporation's own systems of conduct that it deploys, it's its responsibility, and it is manifesting in the sense both of revealing and instantiating its intention and knowledge through the systems it deploys. So, you know, none of this business, in my view, of blaming the robot or blaming the car or whatever you know, let's, let's blame the corporation that deploys the system, and have a look at the system to see the choices that are made, because there will be very revealing cho- default choices all the way along. You know, do do we um preference, for example, safety over speed, or um you know the smoothness of the ride, for example. You know, um you know ha- you know, in testing, what kind of testing has been taking place? You know, um, you know, are the testing parameters themselves ethical and responsible? These sorts of looking at the s- system of conduct or the practices is another way of saying it, um, and un- understanding how those have been deployed and the choices that are made in each, each step that's coordinated together, that's where you actually get the true corporate mindset being revealed. So, you're listening to the BLS report, and our
0: guest is Professor Elise Bant from UWA. Elise, we've been talking about your theory, systems intentionality, and now I just wanted to ask you how does it work in practice? So, if courts, for example, came to recognize systems intentionality as one way or the way to discover fault, like intention, knowledge, um,
2: on the part of a corporation, how would that work in practice? So it's always been very important for me that this should be a theory that's fit for purpose. That is, it has to be workable in practice. And thankfully, because I've been building on foundations laid by uh, law reformers over a long period of time, uh I have a a wealth of jurisprudence that I can draw on and in particular in Australia we have prohibitions on unconscionable systems of conduct and patterns of behaviour. Now these are statutory prohibitions but they actually build themselves on equitable uh, principles that have been developed by our Australian courts dealing with unconscionable conduct and There's a huge body of law out there which tells us precisely how to prove a system of conduct, um, how to frame a system of conduct at higher and lower levels of generality, what kind of evidence is relevant, you know, um, litigation approaches to – Proving a system of conduct, those sorts of things. And uh, in one of the chapters in The Culpable Corporate Mind, I actually, the whole point of that chapter is to distill from those cases those insights about how to prove a system of conduct. Now, importantly, those cases are not trying to prove my theory, but uh, their approach is wholly consistent with uh, systems intentionality and helps show precisely how it can operate in practice because, in my view, it's already happening out there. It's just more about drawing out those those uh, slightly uh, hidden uh, developments in the law, drawing them out and making them explicit. So, so we already know and the courts are already uh, actively uh, investigating um, unconscionable systems of conduct and in the course of doing that work they've also had to think about how business models can reveal corporate mental states so they've you know had to consider for example whether or not a corporation was engaging in conduct that was reckless for example or was dishonest in some way now again they've been doing it for the purpose of this specific statutory prohibition on unconscionable systems of conduct but it's really very useful um, as a way of understanding how in practice you can connect a proven system of conduct with specific corporate mental states like knowledge and, and intention of different forms and so on. So that that work exists out there um, in the courtrooms of Australia and what I've done is actually distill those insights and explain how they would, well, I, in my view, render... systems intentionality intentionality entirely uh, work-ready, practice-ready. Thank you. I think
0: when I first read about systems intentionality, it's interesting that you at least give the example of trying to have your expenses reimbursed in a university, and I totally relate to that. But the thing it really made me think of was trying to get childcare payments when my children were little and I was trying to apply for a subsidy from the government for them to go to childcare. And the whole thing was just designed to make that not pay out, right, basically. And I think all across the sort of social support mechanism, so if you ask people who are in the disability support space or in the aged care support space, or um, they, they talk about exclusion by design, so systems that are actually designed in a way that, the person who operates them can say, well, we have a mechanism, you know, to give people assistance, but then they design it in such a way that it throws up a whole lot of barriers for people who actually require that assistance. And so it really made me think of that. Now, of course, that's that's a discussion for a whole other day, a bit like John's discussion about AI. We might have to have another session. But I know because you and I have talked about it before that if I say the words robo-debt, uh, most people will go, ah, systems intentionality, I get it. So it does have application in that sort of area as well, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, so, so systems intentionality um, builds on a wonderful body of uh, work uh, done by moral philosophers who are thinking about group responsibility. And, of course, corporations, commercial corporations, are just one form of group, governments and churches and sporting associations and all there are all sorts of other different types of groups. And it applies perfectly well in those other contexts as well. And certainly with uh, RoboDebt, that is a classic example of where systems intentionality uh, really suggests that the government of, of that time engaged in conduct that... Uh, was uh, open to characterisation as dishonest and even predatory, and I've I've written an article on this uh, more recently, or a paper, and in fact made submissions to the commission uh, on this, uh, because you know even if we think about just the proactive elements of the system, you had. Uh, welfare recipients who were already disadvantaged and vulnerable that's why they were welfare recipients so you you have that situation of disadvantage you had a method of calculating their debts that was guaranteed to be inaccurate with the result that it would exacerbate their existing position of disadvantage and this was the government's own system that it deployed um, and you know, on my approach in systems intentionality, you can't um, sleepwalk a system of conduct. You have to engage in it intentionally in the sense of engage in that conduct intentionally. You can't do it, you know, your system of conduct doesn't just occur by some sort of divine act. It It, 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 it is a manifestation of a general intention. And what's more, the corporation or the organization, if it be a government, has to have the knowledge required for that system to run effectively. And the whole hub of Robo debt was this income averaging or income smoothing, which was always going to produce inaccurate debts for a significant number of welfare recipients. So so, you know, it was just always from the outset, it was going to be an unethical system of conduct that was engaged in, you know, on my system's intentionality approach knowingly and with understanding of the inevitable consequences for people who were um, already disadvantaged. And when you add to that the package of surrounding supporting mechanisms, the reactive corporate fault mechanisms, if we like, you know, the litigation processes, the debt recovery, the reversal of the onus, the, the removal of limitations periods coupled with requirements for people to prove for the first time what had occurred to them 10 years ago when they were not required to you know, hold documentation or keep it and so on. Truly Kafkaesque features of that model reflected, I, I felt, a most culpable government state and 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 the important thing is there is that this doesn't mean that you know, for example, the frontline service providers were equally culpable. This is organizational culpability I'm talking about. so So we can distinguish between the humans who were embedded in the system and you know sometimes very unwillingly playing their role. and the and the organizational culpability expressed through robo-debt. That, that government culpability I think was very s- serious um, indeed and um, I, I do think that you know, when you look at it through the lens of systems intentionality, it also gives you a way of challenging um, uh, protestations of ignorance on the part of key leaders um, within that, that system who oversaw its design and implementation. But that's, as you say, something for another day.
1: Well, that's been a wonderful discussion about uh, corporate culpability and uh, this uh, model of systems intentionality, which certainly is very, very interesting. And I, for one, will be watching with with interest to see how this develops over the next uh, little while. Um, Thank you to Professor Elise Bant from University of WA, and thank you to my co-presenter, Professor Pamela Hanrahan. This has been the 14th BLS Report, a podcast by the Business Law Section of the Law Council of Australia in honour of the late Professor Bob Baxter AO.